Welcome to High Performance Mindset with Dr. Sindra Kampoff. Do you want to reach your full potential, live a life of passion, go after your dreams? Each week, we bring you strategies and interviews to help you ignite your mindset. Let's bring on Sindra. Welcome, Artur, to the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining me from Denver. How are you doing up there? I'm doing well. Thanks very much. I really appreciate this opportunity, you, know, you including me in the uh, group of wonderful speakers before me, and I'm sure you are working on uh, other um, uh, speakers as well. So I really appreciate that opportunity. Thank you very yeah, much. Absolutely. Well, you're one of the guests that I wanted to have on for a while. So um, in my work in, in performance psychology, I read a lot of your work and uh, mm-hmm. use a lot of it in the classes that I teach. So it's an honor to have you on. And uh, for those people who might not know a little bit about your background, Artur, just get us started with telling us a little bit about your passion and what you're doing right now. Um, my passion is situated and located in sport and performance psychology. And it's like threefold, if you will. Okay. One of them is consulting. And that was the goal for me to come from Poland to the United States and study sport and performance psychology with Dr. Keith Henschen at the University of Utah. The second equal passion is teaching, spreading the word about uh, sports psychology mm-hmm. and even more specifically how to do it. So hence my uh, work at the University of Denver and teaching a number of classes and also supervising students in their own uh, delivery of psychological services. So it's sport and performance psychology, it's consulting, it's teaching and supervision primarily and a bit of research um, and publications and presentations so they, they, I belong to that, that part of that world that you also are so very active and so successful. And that's where my passion is primarily located. Yeah, excellent. So give us a little insight in terms of your consulting. I know you've worked with uh, the Paralympic team, which I want to ask you about. And then you have your own private practice. And so just, just tell us a little bit about that for people who aren't familiar with what you've been doing lately. Great. Um, um, Paralympic sports um, are quite underserved in terms of population. Probably you and, and, and your uh, uh, listeners know about it quite a bit. Although in recently, probably past uh, one, one decade or so, there is a greater interest in uh, athletes with disab- disabilities, physical disabilities, sensory disabilities, and then intellectual disabilities as well. So uh, there was about six years ago when um, we at the Department of uh, um, Psychology, Sport and Performance Psychology here at the University of Denver, we were con- con- contacted with uh, an idea to look for a fit whether we would be uh, able to work with Paralympic teams. And, and Jamie Shapiro and myself, uh, we stayed on uh, after that conversation. And then at this point, I'm consulting with three Paralympic teams in winter sports, which is a para-Nordic uh, para-alpine, and para-snowboarding. Nice. Okay. Give us a little insight in terms of going to the Paralympic Games and what that was like for you as a consultant. Um, if Paralympic Games was probably the, the, the biggest major event for me in my life. I started consultation with elite performers back in Poland in early 90s, and I was part of the preparation of Polish judo team, men's and women's judo team for Barcelona Olympic Games in 1992. Okay. And then after that experience, I came here and then started for my doctorate and then my uh, academic and then consulting career started from there. So Paralympic Games was definitely a, a highlight in terms of my career 
um, uh, as a consultant and um, consultants who went there and other professionals, nutritionists and obviously coaches and, and, and uh, staffing, they always speak about how different and, uh, and challenging that, that is. And indeed, uh, it was. Uh, mm-hmm. And on the, on the other hand, how much challenge that produces is also a great deal of satisfaction and opportunities to grow and learn and evolve as a consultant. Yeah, for sure. And give us a, a sense of Paralympic athletes and what they might, um, man, I mean, I know they're very similar to, they are elite athletes, right? So mm-hmm. what do you see that they struggle with in terms of mindset? Um, indeed, there is, in, in a number of respects, they are very similar to able-bodied athletes. I primarily work with athletes with physical disability and sensory okay. uh, disabilities. Uh, and then there is research on it, and there is also practical insights into it, mm-hmm. how there is a great deal of, of shared common uh, type of experience. And yet there is uh, quite a, a plethora of very specific challenges and, and contextual features that uh, Paralympic athletes uh, need to face. Uh, here are a few examples. So uh, from from a, a social context and then facilities and then people's opinions, they, they need to work through against with, however you want to call it, with biases and, and certain types of lowered expectations uh, from, from around. Um, facilities don't have ramps. The access to the bathroom is very sometimes very problematic for those athletes. So that's that's one of them. Uh, another one is that um, they, they, many of them, they experience or suffer from medical conditions that are progressive in nature. Okay. So from that perspective, there is a, a, a different uh, approach to goal setting. So mm-hmm. we cannot view and see that in some cases that there will be a progression of outcomes or results. Oh, sure. And then we need to, to change and switch the um, goal setting accordingly. Um, for visualization purposes, athletes who, who up after amputations or paralysis and they don't uh, feel uh, some parts of their limbs or their limbs at all, we need to modify the, the uh, scripts for the imagery, for ma- mindfulness meditation, for example, for body scan. So that needs to be done as well and, and modified. Um, in a sense, you, you could also, what I've experienced is in major events and the Paralympic Games, is there is so much more time that's needed for preparation, for making sure the equipment is there, prosthetics are fitting, um, um, obviously getting to places. Uh, bathroom breaks are the major stressors for, for uh, Paralympic athletes. Um, so that's another one that they need to figure out. Those facilities mm. sometimes I mentioned are less accessible or they're away or they are temporarily set at the venues, which, which produces an additional level of, of, of problems. Uh, and maybe last one, just to, to um, illuminate some of those uh, contextual features, is that uh, at, to, in, in order to make the field of play fair, if you will, there is this classification system that mm-hmm. then the medical doctors and com- committees assess what type of category classification an athlete will be perform, performing, so they e- equalize, in a sense, the, their abilities so then the competition is being fair. So that's a source probably of the most frustrations that uh, we are dealing with, with the work with the, with the athletes. And that produces another major disruptor, if you will, and then draw their attention to unfairness of it, because that's typically how it's being perceived by most of those athletes. And then um, in the in working around it and with it, uh, I actually I had to expand my practice and my professional philosophy and, and skill set, because... Okay. 
idea of letting go of it, oh, that was unfair, or that athlete has more uh, uh, propulsion because of the uh, uh, longer limb, uh, that trying to rationalize with it, trying to make reason with it and make make it some somehow less stressful did not work. So letting go of it was not possible. So what, what we did find, and I did find then through my own professional growth and development and listening to other consultants, we, I switched for some of those non-controllables mm. to let it be. So this is how the mindfulness, acceptance and commitment approaches in, 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 uh, I invited that into my own practice. So yes, it is unfair. It's not worth thinking about it, trying to reason with it. But can we focus on what's important now? The win principle that probably your speakers spoke about a number of times. When what's important now is connecting with the values. And then after understanding that this, this particular destructor needs, needs to be there, I cannot reason with it. I cannot let go of it but I can let it be and then refocus on what, what's the task at hand. Yeah, that's really important. I think it's, I can tell that it's really important for Paralympic athletes, you know, just given everything yes. that you just mentioned, but I also think about us in our everyday life, there's so many uncontrollable factors. So I like the mm -hmm. idea of letting it be, not fighting against it. You know, we can't control the facilities that mm -hmm. are there. If I can mm -hmm. stop and go to the bathroom or not, but I can control my response to that. And I yes. like the idea of like what's important now. Mm -hmm. Give us a sense or tour of like what you said about like people's opinions and biases and how that might impact performance or happiness when you're at, you know, a competition like the Paralympic Games. Mm -hmm. How might you help an athlete uh, like through that? And then like, what's the, what are they struggling with? Mm -hmm. um, so for example, um, bus transportation and in different countries, um, bus drivers or mini bus drivers, okay. and then they are being hired um, for that particular event. And then they have Paralympic athletes, para-adoptive athletes, and they find, find themselves in uh, excessive help mode because they think that those athletes are very fragile and they, they need assistance and help. So they, in, in a sense, they, they, we could think that they subscribe to that tragedy, tragedy model of understanding people, individuals with disabilities, that something tragic happened and indeed it did, but those, those individuals are less able and we need to help them and society needs to be on that overprotective mode. Yeah. On the other hand, there could be in individuals around facilities and dining area, bus transportation, that they don't acknowledge or they don't see that there needs to be an, a, um, a different approach to those individuals. And it could be that an athlete is sitting on a chair and then having a plate to be loaded by, by a, a service, a dining service professional. And then they need an extra approach or an extra um, a, a flexibility on the dining uh, server and which sometimes it's not happening and then it causes frustrations. Uh, so that, that those are just a couple of examples that come to mind. But also we as professionals and I, when I entered the world of, of para-athletes, I need to look very closely at my own biases uh, and then how I was acting in, in front of them and around them. So uh, I came, I'm coming from Polish uh, background and then we have the, this courtesy or man, manners, good manners perspective that as, could be on the surface, but also is in me is very deeply uh, inside me. So I, I, I'm thinking that opening a door for an athlete on a wheelchair or on crutches makes most sense in the world, but it doesn't make the same sense for them. And there was an, a number of situations that actually they were opening the door, holding that door for me and maybe for other uh, 
um, people on the team and I had to accept it obviously and I, I had to see how to individualize approach and which particular individual needed uh, in those circumstances. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of learning and reflecting in terms of your own practice and not necessarily the delivery of sport and performance psychology, but uh, how you might be interacting with these athletes. So what have you, what, what are the lessons that you learned in terms of doing well in that environment and treating athletes, no matter what their disability is like as, as a person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, wh- one thing that I've learned uh, because of their pains, um, inflammations, uh, how the prosthetics fit or not, not fit. And there is some literature that to support that their muscle soreness or muscle pains post-workouts have a different quality. So one of the lessons learned was to really emphasize in our conversation and consultation the notion of recovery and self-care, okay. which, which is very well um, um, accepted and practiced in able-bodied sports. But yeah. here, that was even more important. Many of those athletes actually have to work or they are student athletes like other athletes. So there is a, a, a additional roles that they um, juggle in life and that recovery piece was very important. This, the second lesson that was very important, and Jamie Shapiro, my colleague, and uh, we co- consult actually with two teams, okay. uh, she was saying there is an, an adoptive um, men, uh, mental performance consultant. So we need to adopt, we need to modify our, our right. approach, be very flexible, and, and really blend with the environment in a sense that makes more sense to the, those individuals. So uh, modifications to different exercises. Um, if you come and have a team meeting, and if, if typically you would have a portion involving writing, uh, then some athletes cannot write uh, amputations or finger deformations or other, other features of their medical condition, that is basically impossible. So then we need to adjust accordingly to those types of conditions. Um, another one is, and you already mentioned it, and, and that's your very great, great proponent of it, is the growth mindset. Yeah, embracing it specifically and that becomes not something in the background but it started to be my self-reflective target whether I'm moving the direction in myself uh, um, believing I can acquire skills I can acquire that knowledge and then also if I can be some somehow walk together or roll together with an athlete with that growth mindset so they they we all subscribe to the idea of ongoing improvement uh, deliberate practice, growth mindset come to mind, and the both them performing their roles and their sports, and me joining them as yet another performer of my skills and my role, and then striving for excellence together. Yeah, excellent. Our tour, I go back to uh, what you were saying earlier about you're not necessarily opening the door or coming from like this tragedy model. How did you learn to do that? Did you just watch the cues of the athlete? Did they give you that feedback? You know, how have you learned to be in that space as an able-bodied person? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that was we, we had to go through a very steep learning curve, if you will, or performance curve. Uh, uh, that would be more appropriate to say. Um, so <laughs> that, that came just all those things that you've covered already in terms of athletes, how they reacted, what they directly were saying. Mm. Uh, they, actually, they have so much experience, elite athletes who are on the Paralympic teams in accepting or initiating professional staffs from sports science, coaches, consultants, nutritionists, nutritionists, and so on, that we did not have that experience with them and around them in the past. So 
in, in a very intriguing way, more mature athletes offer a mentorship to us. And they would say, okay, I know that you are here first time at the World Championships. No, I, I will tell you about para swimming. I'll tell you more about what we, what we go through. And there was a more mature veteran athlete on the team. So he decided to do it. Coaches are a wonderful resource there as well. And coaching meetings, staff meetings, in which those issues also uh, become part of the conversations and then, and then we can modify our behaviors as well. Then um, Jamie uh, Shapiro and myself and recently Sarah Mitchell, we have those groups, formal groups of supervision and exchanging notes on cases on, on how we do things, but also informally supporting each other. So then a number of consulting trips that Jamie and Shapiro and I, we took from Denver to Aspen or to Vail or to um, other places in Colorado, then we spend those hours in the car. And this is when we, we talked. We talked about many different things, including how we fit, we don't fit, what, is, what, is good, what are good approaches to really make good transi transition into that context. Excellent, excellent. Our tour, when you think about being at the Paralympic Games and the athletes who were able to really thrive at that location, what did you see that they did from a mental perspective versus those that maybe didn't meet their expectations or do as well? There, there, there is a definite line between the first comers and those of, 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 of them who actually participated in the Paralympic Games before or even two, uh, two, two times prior. So um, the, the notion of self-protection was very clear in the uh, veteran athletes. They needed their space, they needed their services, they, they, they needed the, the, this uh, schedule being set up for them. So they, they were on the end of managing it in a way that fits them best. Okay. For the younger, uh, for the athletes who went there first time, there was a great deal of support, psychological support, coaching support, and staffing support for them to figure that out and then sometimes um, uh, recommending or suggesting certain so so solutions or, or um, approaches so that would serve better than uh, the mindset. So one of pro protecting and one of learning, depending on how much experience they've had. Okay. And obviously, day by day, taking it race by race, run by run, uh, meal by meal. So mm -hmm. that was another element uh, involved. And then we were really very well integrated and was really so good to be part of that um, staffing in, in terms of on the ground, United States Olympic Committee at the time. Now it's called United States uh, Olympic and Paralympic Committee. That's the first uh, uh, committee of that sort in the world that decided to put those two names together, which was wow. just as great news uh, yeah. for, for us, for the humanity in general, how we embracing the different um, um, shades and, and aspects of diversity. So, so probably I, I would end up uh, here this way. And then um, one last thing is that they, the protection, not only of the mindset, but protection of the recovery and, and time for themselves so they can be best prepared they could. So they had self-protection, like protection of their recovery, of their time. Mm -hmm. uh, they were really able to stay in the present moment. Anything else that you saw, you know, I'm just thinking about maybe the, the athletes who did uh, win the gold medal or medaled. Anything else that you saw them do differently that what they were able to do so well? There was this, this joy of achievement. Yeah. And depending on an individual, uh, mm, there were some individuals who actually came to the Paralympic Games 
first time, and they produced an, a, an excellent record of meddling a number of times, and individuals for, for whom it was the, the second or third Paralympic Games, and they did it first time, they meddled first time. Um, so in, in, in this sense, the, some of them could, one person in specifically, had a, a feeling that the achievement need was saturated, and having a medal or two is bigger than one could expect. So then we worked on developing greater hunger, if you will. That was a metaphor that showed up in a conversation uh, when that person had a break after warm-up before the next uh, race. And then that, that person was eating a banana. And then I connected because we are immersed. We're walking different places. Do you need anything? Can I bring you more water or anything like that? Oh, I'm see, I, I see you eating on banana. Could be like you're a bit, a bit hungry, and then obviously you follow the nutrition's recommendation. That's great. How about the hunger for greater success and bringing yet another medal? So yeah. that was an entry point, and then so the the sustainability of high level achievement was was extended for next few events rather than being uh, happy with what has, has been accomplished thus far. Mm, I like the metaphor of like eating <laughs> along yes. with that and greater yes. hunger. I think people can, you know, a lot of people could really benefit from hearing more about how did you help her figure out that she, you know, desired a greater hunger for success. Um, so th- that was, so that was built on the metaphor of, of that snack. And then that's, that was, for, that person worked with, with me for prior for about two years. So then five, seven-minute conversation could actually accomplish some of fine-tuning or calibration, if you will. And that person told me later and post-Paralympics, uh, and then very recently, that actually that metaphor of hunger connected very well yeah. in terms of that the, the hunger is, is one that you start to eat, to eat on banana, and then you have one bite, another bite, and third bite, and you can have a fifth bite, and you can have a sixth bite. So it doesn't, it doesn't, you don't, you get, don't, doesn't get satisfied with your first bite, with your first medal, with your second medal, second bite, but you can keep going. And that's a natural progression of how, how we operate, how human, how human function. Obviously, that's much more complex than this because there's a, a, every day is different and then sleeping and the recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, next events are more and more difficult because you accumulated a level of fatigue. So there is a great deal of things that go into it. And yet, this metaphor had somehow resonated with that person that had a, 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 this ability to capture the time uh, uh, from now to forward that there was an, an extension of that hunger and need to still achieve and not be satisfied yet. Yeah. Be satisfied, but not completely, if you will. Ah, good, good. Give us a sense, Artur, of a topic or a concept or strategy, something that you see yourself um, talking a lot with the athletes that you work with? Mm-hmm. Um, one that, that I, I found um, as very important for uh, biathlon athletes, especially for the shooting portion, okay. is the idea that many motor control specialists um, speak about automaticity or that ability to free conscious control over your movement trusting, relying on automatic skill execution mm-hmm. that only work, works with very well-learned skills. So then in order to, to work on that automaticity, we had it to develop the notion of trust. So the concept of trust 
and also focus, present mind focus that you mentioned before, are kind of cornerstones of my um, philosophy or theory of optimal functioning. Okay. Dr. Marco Yagi and myself in 2012, we, we sort of started to um, talk about how our own professional philosophy and our specifically theories of performance excellence inform our work. Yeah. So obviously we had to dig into our own and I found that focus is the primary cornerstone of my um, um, theory and that and trust and b- between focus, present moment focus and trusting your ability or and then actually that's having no expectations, having no positive expectations, having no negative expectations or issues with confidence, if you will. Okay. So trusting I can execute the skills and the metaphor of muscle memory comes to mind practicing, deliberate practicing, all those hours. And, and the eye inside of the hurricane, that the yeah. things can be very volatile and quick and fast outside, mm-hmm. but I'm sitting inside of it, in the eye of it, and things are calm, things are focused, things are working for me. So, so focus, trust, producing hopefully automaticity, and there is an entire mental training and strategies how that could be accomplished, like a preset mind that uh, upon approach, to the range, an individual gradually is shifting attention from pushing, being a Nordic skier, being a cross-country skier to a shooter. So now they will need to adjust their heart rate. They will need to, to regulate their breathing. They will need to get on the mat. They will need to adjust their mindset. So we have the uh, transition before the range. Then there is an on-mat routine, and there is a post-mat, post-range routine as well to let go and then move on to pushing and then switching the mindset from the shooter to pu- to, to racer again. So, uh, and one more element that here is that that underlies it all that I, we already spoke about it is the growth mindset, or I call it ongoing improvement. Okay. So, improving in all aspects of preparation: better nutrition, better sleep, better conversations, better uh, retention and learning, better mental game. So, the idea of altus situs fortius, if you will, from the ancient degrees that we want to be faster, stronger, and more powerful. So if people want to learn more about uh, your professional philosophy and how to, how to actually you know, write their theory of excellence, one amazing resource <laughs> that I think is a classic article in our field is something that you wrote. It is an article in The Sports Psychologist, is that yes. right, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. on professional philosophy. So it's something I have all my graduate students read right away. <laughs> and then yes. you have another book that I really, really enjoy about experts' approaches to sports psychology. And you have mm-hmm. other resources, right? But where can people learn more about your theory of excellence? Is it in that book on experts? Well, th- this, this is probably what's going to happen. We are now contemplating a second edition of this book. So Ooh. potentially that could enter that. Okay. And also, um, I was invited to, to contribute a chapter in the book uh, by one of our UK colleagues, Dave Collins. And so that, that more of, of that could be also found there. And also, there was an, an article a few years back in the um, research, professional research and practice, uh, in, in which a number of colleagues uh, of, of mine, including Marco Yagi and, and Alexander Cohen and Tracy Stafter and, and um, John Messler and myself, we put uh, in, the, in this article excerpts or sort of very um, condensed versions of our uh, professional excellence. 
So Excellent. I would be so very happy to to send you a link or even an entire article, and That's then wonderful. you might make it useful yourself. Yeah, what we'll do is we'll put it on the show notes page. So if people want to head over to sindracampoff uh, dot com and then slash Artur. <laughs> yes. To find it, or just I bet if you search Sindra and Artur, you'll be able to find it. I like this idea of like clearly articulating what your theory of performance excellence is. I think that's a necessity. But one of the questions that I have kind of related to that, Artur, is like this no expectations. How do you think that you, well, maybe first start with talking about like, why is that so important? Because, you know, people might not realize that that's really important. And then how do you train your own mind or help athletes train their mind to have no expectations? Yes. I'm glad that you followed up because then when I was saying no expectations is there no expectations for the outcome. Yeah, there we go. There is an expectation and trust. Yes. I am capable of engaging in the process of performing. So there are procedures, protocols, and processes involving in me executing the task. And I trust I I can do them. But there is no expectations what those um, processes, protocols would produce. So this is a very difficult, this is the most difficult portion of of working on the automaticity with the athletes that I had um, privilege to work with. Because the expectations will be always there. And that some individuals internalize them into self-pressures. So medal count, um, ranking, uh, obviously other things that that come to to mind from an outcome perspective. And we cannot avoid them. And then from a mindfulness acceptance and commitment uh, approach, our mind will be producing those thoughts as a thought-producing factory. And among others, those, those thoughts of expectations will be showing up. So here is when, when we, we, we can reason more with expectations of the process, muscle memory. I've done it many times. I could do it in my sleep. I can trust it. I can be in the eye of the hurricane. That's the idea of having expectations of myself. Trust, I can do the process. But then letting go of expectations for the outcome could be coming from CBT perspective, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, approach. And then reasoning with them, putting them aside, uh, saying that's going to be later. I'm going to include that in my post-race processing. We need to have that as well. So then bracketing it, neutralizing it, positive mm-hmm. self-talk. So all, all different CBT techniques, including visualizations, me uh, sitting with mindset, pre-competitive mindset, there is no expectations for the outcome, but I can rest in and relax in into things I can do. So then what came handy with no expectations was the mindfulness approach, as I mentioned, is that we cannot remove expectations. They will be there, but I can change my relationship towards them and with them. And I know that they will go away. I don't need to fuse with them. That's okay. That's natural with them. And then that's fine. Is there something I want to do now? Do I need to go and get my treatment? Do I need to sleep? Do I need to review, visualize my course for tomorrow? Do I need to focus on my warm-up? Yeah, that's awesome. I thought uh, that explanation was uh, top-notch, you know, that no expectations related to the outcome. So when you observed the athletes at the Paralympic Games, the ones that did, you know, maybe met their expectations or won a medal, do you think they, did they have that goal of winning a medal, but they just weren't focused on it, you know, at the Games? Or kind of tell us a little bit about how, this uh, no expectation for the outcome like mm-hmm. played out. 
Yes, and um, so that, that, that works exactly like you said, in the sense that they have expectations and then they're capable of, of to the, for the outcome and they're capable of managing them, let yeah. it go or let it be, and then focus on what needs to be focused. That's what sits in my theory of, of um, performance excellence. Another one that is that for some athletes, and that's one of the m- m- mistakes I, I made in preparation with one of, of the athletes for the Paralympic Games, okay. that I trusted too much into the outcome orientation and pressures from, from the, the coaching and then the, the whole idea of uh, Paralympic Games, that the outcome orientation will be there. So focus went exclusively and entirely into the processes. And then one of the feedback that, that uh, we received from, from, from coaches and, uh, was that some athletes, and that was that uh, athlete that I work with, uh, that a person was not, in this case, hungry enough for, for meddling, for, for the outcome. So the, mm. the, the expectations are so vital or, um, or hopes and an optimism in terms of producing the results are vital, but then in my mind, but the question is, what is that that you do with this? There were two athletes that also I work with and they were so authentically and genuinely dismissing the notion of meddling okay. and then results that I truly and authentically then believed them, that they one, that person, one of those individuals went there to learn and they were pursuing the, the, the goal of finding nice balance between the speed and safety. The other person had an approach of Buddhism, Eastern philosophy, of being an empty cup and being open to every type of experience. And for that person, very easily, the idea of I don't have an expectations for the outcomes authentically came up. Okay. So the whole range of individuals, probably you, you also find that in your own work. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Great clarification. I'm glad that we expanded on that. So Artur, one question that I usually ask every guest is to tell us about a time that didn't go so well for them and uh, what they learned from it. And I think this is important for me to ask you because, wow, you know, you're so intelligent and have written so many great things in our field and have done such quality work that, you know, people might think, well, our tour is probably perfect. <laughs> <laughs> no, yes. I, I, I know what you're saying. And then there is the, the idea of, of, of all of us uh, pursuing uh, the best that we, that we can produce is yeah. so dear to me. And it's so dear to you and all our speakers that are part of your great uh, podcasts. What, one thing that, that comes to mind and, um, there are a couple of things, but the one primarily that I wanted to share is that I feel that, that I fail and probably many other people in the sense so frequently is that if we don't, if I don't live up to my expectations or the aspirations. So if I already mentioned that, uh, that metaphor of traveling and walking together, rolling together with the athlete, they pursue their own excellence. We pursue, I pursue my own, that we sometimes quite often under-deliver. So I had that idea that this could have been uh, um, explained better. That would be a better way to connect with that athlete. So there is always that that, um, aspect of not quite succeeding, if you will, but still not failing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that was also one lesson that uh, I learned early on from from research uh, with elite performers in performing arts and sports that they had this intriguing um, definition of what failing and succeeding is. And that was actually the topic of our research. They had like four, they, they did have four possibilities. 
Okay. Uh, you succeed, successful. Uh, you fail. And there are two additional ones. You didn't succeed. And the third one is you didn't fail. Ah. So succeeding, not succeeding, not failing, and then failing. And for them, there were qualitatively different meanings around them. So in the sense, there are three out of four that are not failing. So 75% a possibility of not failing, which is protective for mind, mindset and confidence and then motivations and so on. So um, um, when I'm looking at, at and I'm examining and self-reflecting on how I, I do things, that's, that's very helpful to soften the edge of self-criticism, if you will. And on the other hand, there are things that, and, and from those we can recover. So if um, there is an athlete for whom uh, facing the idea of being a favorite in their events, yeah. because they accumulated the um, great um, level of accomplishments, and they, don't, they avoid that. They clearly want to avoid it because they believe that puts too much pressure on them. And then um, CBT approach that I learned from Peter Harbaugh in his article, how to work with the favorites, how to, to work from, from beliefs and convictions around it, it didn't work. So then I, I decided to switch to um, uh, mindfulness and acceptance and commitment approaches. And I didn't quite connect with the athlete and I didn't sell that possibility quite well okay. and that person continued to prefer avoidance and then pretending those expectations are not there rather than face the situation okay. so then I could recover from it and then I strategized approach I employed motivational interviewing into our conversations uh, really beyond the autonomy supportive and created different options and then the athlete decided to try sitting with the expectations during their regular mindfulness training so that's one of those failures, mistakes, problems that we can recover. Hopefully that was one. The other one that I mentioned that we go to the Paralympic Games and I, I align with the process, with the, with the athlete's preference, I follow too much the process orientation and then the outcome, the, the hunger for it, the focus, the, 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 oh, the intensity okay. of performing and competing was okay. underserved. And I cannot recover from that because the athlete didn't know. Oh. <laughs> so, and and I, 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 in those situations, I recall very vividly in how uh, the, the big um, uh, professionals in our field speak about it, how we need to take care of the process. That's what, what, what we look at, whether we, we've delivered the services and professionally, ethically, according to the best standards. And then with athletes do well, that's their own success and coaching staff and the organization, obviously. But if they don't do well, it's our responsibility to actually look first into what we've done and how we approach things and see if, if, there, if in any way we contributed to that outcome that we witnessed or we were part of. Yeah, that's tough. Um, mm -hmm. I've been in situations like that, our tour, where I have had a few athletes I've worked with have, you know, major failure yes. <laughs> and uh, it's hard to look inside yourself and and okay how did, did I best help this athlete in this case I did there was nothing else that I possibly could have done mm -hmm. you know it, we don't perform for them yes. so I appreciate just your vulnerability and your honesty about mm -hmm. that how that can be really difficult because it can be really difficult for me as well give us a sense in that situation how maybe you overemphasize the process because I think that's going to be really helpful for people who yes. are listening since yeah. we just talked about like mm -hmm. this expectation, like you having no expectations for the outcome, but keeping mm -hmm. that hunger alive. So it mm -hmm. feels like this, this like fine line, right? Like this yes. balance. So give yes. us a perspective on how you see that. 
it's like the, the way you, you presented it back to me and it's and that's the, the the way also I'm thinking about it is that there's a great deal of paradox in it. Yeah. Um, hence the idea of be, be having no expectations and yet believing and trusting you can do well and then produce good results is a, is a paradox, experiential paradox. And yet I, I also believe that many of the lead athletes that I work with and I hear about and I listen to and, and I watch, they, 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 they are so-called creative personalities. And um, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, beyond his awesome work on flow, he also worked on understanding creativity. And then he he believed that creative individuals uh, are they have they are multifaceted in the sense that they have extreme um, ways of functioning: be very introverted and be very extroverted, be very passionate energy producing and then relaxing and doing nothing for you know a longer period of times so in my mind elite performers are also those who are capable of tolerating both so yeah. it's not it's a par- intellectual paradox but experientially it makes sense to them because they can embrace both the expectations and no expectations both the intensity and then being relaxed when they when they say when i'm more relaxed when i lose this is when i'm fastest when I let go of control of my line rigidly, when I go on the on the uh, skiing race, then all of a sudden the speed is there for me. So they learn that from from producing physical um, achievements on their own, and then we transfer it to the mental game, and some, somehow that paradox they are capable of tolerating that. Yeah. So one thing that I over regulated that idea of of um, um, process was that um, before going to the Paralympic Games, I ran by uh, the teams the idea if they would be individual athletes would like to write three statements uh, as being their CEOs, chief executive officers of their own experience. So, what experience you are after for the Paralympic Games? And there was this statement of goal, mission statement, like the, you know, in the business world and then in military and in elite sports, outcome statement. Then there was a, a process statement and there was a personal growth component statement. Okay. And that, that individual that we speak about when, when I delivered the, 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 this outcome out, uh, aspect, that person decided not to develop the outcome mission statement. Only process and only what I, is that what I want that for me as a, as a person in life. Ah. And my following the client and trusting that person because that was third Paralympics, Okay. I I agreed and I took it that, that we will be not working on the outcome aspect of it. We just covered the experience and then the process. So that's how I can pinpoint back at least one element that this this under regulation of outcome happened for that athlete. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, thank you for uh, being open about that and helping us learn and grow from your experience. So Artur, I took so much from this interview. I want to repeat a few things back to you. First of all, I love that you uh, could clearly articulate your theory of performance excellence. I think that was great for us to hear. And I really enjoyed our conversation about having no expectations for the outcome and this paradox between the outcome and the process. I enjoyed what you talked about related to like Paralympic athletes and how the best really do have the self-protection that they make sure that they are recovered and they have everything that they need, but they also have this like greater hunger, joy of achievement. They're able to really stay in the present moment. 
And I, I just really enjoyed here, you know, talking to you from a high level uh, perspective. The last thing is like this idea that we don't either fail or succeed then maybe there's this, these other options too, like that we don't succeed or we don't fail. So how can people reach out to you if they're interested in learning more about your work and learning more about your consulting practice and reaching out to you related to that? Um, so uh, I'm part of a private practice here in Denver area, Specs Consultants, Sport and Performance Excellent Consultants. So um, I can be reached at Artur, A-R-T-U-R, my first name, at Specs Consultants. That's one word, dot com. S-P, so A-R-T-U-R at S-P-E-X, consultants, that's one word, dot com. Excellent. And what kind of final advice do you have people who are listening, or for people who are listening, Artur? Um, One thing that probably unites uh, us all is love for what we're doing and passion for sport and performance psychology or passion if they're coaches and athletes and, and other professionals in the realm of performance, passion for getting better. So that's really uh, what, what I uh, like to leave us all, including myself, uh, that is passion about the field and getting better and improving the human condition around task performance. Because there are other aspects of human condition that we might not be very, touching very much so here, like maybe artistic nature in, in sports. But the idea of growing and learning and improving, uh, that's, that's one that I really appreciate. Excellent. Thank you, Artur. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so very much again. And I appreciate your questions. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to High Performance Mindset. If you like today's podcast, make a comment, share it with a friend, and join the conversation on Twitter at Mentally Underscore Strong. For more inspiration and to receive Syndra's free weekly videos, check out DrSyndra.com.